Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new berry pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with a new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. The Square Kilometre Array is an international project to build the world's largest radio telescope. Using multiple radio dishes positioned around the world, SKA astronomers hope to solve some of the biggest mysteries in the universe. This episode, I spoke to Professor Carol Mundell, who is a member of SKA's Science and Engineering Advisory Committee, to find out more. My name's Carol Mundell. I'm Professor of Extragalactic Astronomy and Head of Astrophysics at the University of Bath. I'm also currently the Chief International Science Envoy at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office for UK Government. And I'm a radio astronomer by background. I'm an observational astronomer. I study some of the most powerful, explosive and extreme objects in the universe that form black holes. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for speaking to me today, Carol. Um, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. And uh, of course, uh, well, the main reason we're sort of speaking today is because of the uh, Square Kilometre Away, because there's been some pre- pretty interesting news as we're recording. Um, I was wondering if you could just give us a bit of a bit of a background on the Square Kilometre Array and, and how it came about and what, what, what it is. Yeah, sure. So the Square Kilometre Array is a huge science mega project. We're building the world's largest radio telescope. And what this will actually be is a, a thousands of antennas um, across an area in South Africa and also in, in Australia, all pulled to together um, through the global headquarters, the organisation at the um, heart of this really at Jodrell Bank Observatory, which has a long history in radio astronomy. And the goal of this project really is to be able to look to the very distant edges of the universe at wavelengths that the human eye is not sensitive to, and to try to unravel some of the outstanding questions in modern physics. How did um, the project come about and, and how did the UK get to be the uh, sort of epicentre of the whole thing? 
So the project's been very long in the making. I mean, really, the UK was at the heart of the birth of radio astronomy just after the Second World War. And of course, um, Sir Bernard Lovell and Sir Martin Weil were two very famous pioneers of radio astronomy, using some of the technology that particularly Sir Bernard Lovell developed through the war effort in radar. And he established Oddwell Bank Observatory, uh, literally by taking some of the military equipment that was left over from the war um, out to a muddy field in Cheshire. His original science, he was trying to understand strange radio signals that were coming from the sky that he thought were produced by cosmic rays. But he couldn't actually detect those in Manchester because of the interference that was produced by the electrical cables that powered the trams. And so he wanted to go into a radio quiet zone, which was this beautiful isolated field in Cheshire. So it's really that principle um, that also helped us to select the sites for the square kilometre array. So radio quiet region in South Africa and also out in the outback in Australia. So quite extreme places, hopefully radio quiet, um, and actually really, really interesting places to be able to spread a huge array of telescopes out on. And really the formation of you know, the idea of the SKA came right back at the, the late 80s and early 90s. Radio astronomers use a concept called aperture synthesis. So we can make bigger and bigger radio telescopes, but ultimately you get to a limit as to how big a metal dish, a bit like a satellite dish that you use to catch your, your TV signals. Um, there's a physical limit to the engineering. Of course, if anybody's been to Cheshire to see in the level radio telescope, you'll know how big that is. And the idea is that you can actually connect multiple antennas together. And as the Earth rotates, we can gather the signals at each telescope, connect them together as a network and make a telescope that's the equivalent size of the largest separation between the antennas. And so really what we were trying to think about at the beginning of the 1990s, I was actually a PhD student at Jodrell Bank at the time, so it was a very exciting time. It seemed almost like science fiction or fantasy that we could have a telescope the equivalent size of a square kilometre, you know, a giant telescope. But what we were very simplistically trying to think about was how could we detect hydrogen? So regular hydrogen gas, it's the most common gas, a common element in the universe. And we can actually see it in the distant universe if we point our radio telescopes at it. It has a wavelength of 21 centimetres. But we're limited in, in how far we can look out in the universe and how much detail we can see, depending on the technology. So our sort of wet finger in the air was, could we detect hydrogen at a redshift of one with one arc second resolution and be able to, to, to image it? And that was really sort of that back of the envelope calculation. That was our holy grail, if you like. And since then, the project has evolved and developed. And now it's phenomenally exciting because it will be able to do a huge amount of fundamental physics, all the way from understanding general relativity right through to the epoch of realization in the first galaxies. Incredible. I mean, obviously, the uh, UK, it's the UK and South Africa and Australia are sort of the main countries that you think of, but there's, there's a whole sort of consortium of uh, international astronomers and teams and and, and observatories in, involved. How, 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 did they, how, how did you manage to get this, this global project to come together and how, how is it all being sort of managed? That's right. I mean, it's been, you know, many, many years of, I think, really science diplomacy. So we have radio astronomers around the world who have worked with uh, radio facilities that have developed over the last three decades. Um, and really, when we started to suggest that this might be an idea that we could put together and astronomers started to come together and say, what kind of facility would this be and how much would it cost? How could we, we start to design this? There are a number of countries that came forward with all sorts of novel ideas, both the UK, Canada, 
Canada, Australia, United States, China, the Netherlands. And people started to do those early design studies. But now there are at least 14 different countries that are all um, in some way involved with the project. And we're looking for more countries to join because it is an open project. We have seven founding members that have signed the treaty and set up the International Governmental Organization, uh, which was signed earlier on this year by all of our countries, which is fantastic. So that's a legal entity that really establishes the observatory and gives the observatory the permission now to start to actually build the facility in South Africa and Australia, which is a huge milestone that actually we just reached this month. Amazing. Yeah, yes, because that's one of the sort of reasons that we're speaking today is because construction has, has just begun, hasn't it? That's right. So we now have the legal permission um, to begin to do construction. And what this means is, I mean, over the last few years, there's been a huge international effort from all of our design teams doing the system level engineering and designing the system. These systems will be so incredibly complex. We couldn't just turn up um, with a spade, dig the ground and build a radio telescope and connect it up with a few wires and hope it would work. So there's been a huge amount of system engineering, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of engineering design, and then lots of testing of of those systems on paper to see whether they will actually deliver um, to the design specifications. So we've been through critical design review, system design review, and the next piece now is to actually build build the prototype on the ground and start to test all of those designs to make sure that all of the the, the bits, if you like, will work together, all of the digital electronics, um, the the optical fibres, all of the signal pathways. And then we also have to start to think about the immense um, high-performance computing challenge that we will have with the vast data rates that are going to be generated by these telescopes. So very exciting, very challenging. And as you say, many teams of very clever engineers and designers and scientists working together around the globe, both before and the COVID pandemic, to really get the system designed to such a professional level that we can start to build. And then once it's actually built, who will who will be using it? Is it will it be like a sort of um like like a you know like a sort of ground-based telescope observatory that any anyone can apply for for observing time on? So it's going to be a little bit of a different model. I mean, it's something akin to the way particle physicists use CERN. So we have a number of um, very ambitious key science areas that we want to use the facility for. And the best way to do this really, and again, there have been science teams working on this in parallel to the engineering teams, making sure that the engineering design and the science specifications will deliver. Um, So we have those science teams around the world and they will be open. Other astronomers will be able to join, bring their expertise, whatever part of the electromagnetic spectrum they have expertise in but the facility will actually generate these data according to the design documents and then those databases will actually be distributed around the world for astronomers to mine um, because the facility is so complex and actually even the scheduling um, of the of the, the telescopes and the kind of what we call the beams or the, the patches on the sky that they'll be using to gather the data and then ultimately the processing of those data will all have to be done in a very um, coherent systematic way so we will have you know quite complex software that will do all of that um, systems analysis, if you like, of the data coming through, producing images, um, producing time series based on the kind of science questions that we're trying to uh, trying to answer. And so I think from that perspective, it will be a little bit different uh, to the way astronomers traditionally work, where we think of an idea, we propose to win some time on the telescope, and then we design our own schedule. And the telescope gets that set of instructions and we get our data back at our university or our institution and we process the data. That isn't the way we can do it at scale. And so there will be uh, regional data centres around the world and scientists will be able to then either go to those centres or access data once it's sent out from the telescopes. But it's a, a very different way of doing yeah, it signs it. Um, the the um, 
sort of the concept of of, of uh, radio astronomy is 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 one of the really interesting aspects um, of the SKA. It's it's definitely worth delving into that. I mean, why why radio astronomy? What does what does radio astronomy enable us to see that we can't see in in, in visual light with the human eye? Yes, yeah, so radio astronomy uh, covers one part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So light that our eyes sensitive to is part of the visible part of the spectrum, which is really a very narrow, very small part of the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum that ranges from long wavelength radio waves all the way through to very high energy gamma ray and X-rays, which of course, when they're produced in the universe, they don't penetrate through our Earth's atmosphere. They don't reach us on the ground, which is good. Otherwise, we would be toasted because they're very high energy rays. The radio waves do come through the Earth's atmosphere. But the other exciting thing about radio radio waves is it can pen- they can penetrate through dust and gas that visible light gets blocked by and so we can observe during the day and the night we don't have to wait for it to get dark um, in fact we can even observe the sun we can detect radio waves coming from the sun which is part of the, the SKA science case um, we can observe um, really through cloud and we can observe through cosmic dust and cloud and we can also find um, molecular traces and atomic gas traces um, part, in part of the spectrum that you can't see um, in the optical. So if we want to, as I say, look at hydrogen gas, the wavelength of that is quite long. It's 21 centimetres. So you can think about how long that is. That's a, that needs a radio telescope to be able to detect the signal from hydrogen. And you can't see that with a normal visible light telescope. But all of these are pieces of the astronomical jigsaw. So if we look across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, we get a much more complete picture of the physics that is happening out in the universe, where obviously we can't travel to in the spacecraft. (laughs) We can't go out and scoop up some of the hydrogen gas and bring it back to our labs. Um, But we can actually use these radio telescopes to find it, to map it, to measure how it's moving, and ultimately use its its movement to to determine, for example, the, the mass of a galaxy. We can weigh galaxies and we can start to look at the, the cosmic web. So it's really exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely worth delving into some of the science it's going to be doing because you, you just read the list of um, potential uh, areas that SK is going to be looking at and it's sort of like a who's who of, of the big cosmic questions, isn't it? You know, dark energy, dark matter, black holes. What, what, what are some of the, the big science um, uh, avenues that you're most looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it's such a, it's a real smorgasbord of, of fundamentals. And I think that's what's exciting. I mean, for me, I study some of the most extreme processes in the universe. So I study the formation of black holes when massive stars reach the end of their lives um, and explode and produce gamma ray bursts. And they produce very high energy flashes of gamma rays. So we're really excited to see what they will look like uh, in radio waves. And of course, they're gone in a flash. And so actually, that's a very dynamic and way of doing science. So we need to be able to look on short time scales and to be able to do transient real life science, if you like. Um, the other end of the extreme, I think, for me, are the supermassive black holes. So these form at the centres of galaxies. We're not sure whether black holes seed galaxies or galaxies grow their black holes. There's a chicken and egg question about the formation of an evolution of galaxies and the, the co-evolution of their black holes. So I think that for me will be very exciting. I mean, I did my PhD studying hydrogen in nearby galaxies. So to be able to do this at the edge of the distant universe and really unravel how galaxies form and how, you know, how we end up here today sitting on our planet having this conversation, to be able to do that cradle to grave study um, of the universe with this facility, I think is going to be incredibly exciting. And then combining all of that really are the tests of fundamental laws of physics So, of course, you know, Albert Einstein published his famous theory of general relativity um, back at the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, we've done many, many exciting tests of general relativity. You know, the the theory has stood up to the tests of experimental science. But the SKA will be able to push that even further. 
for looking at things like pulsars. And these are dense neutron stars that form again when a, a, a massive star collapses, but doesn't quite make it into a black hole. Some of them spin very quickly. They have very, very strong magnetic fields and they act like atomic clocks. So the SKA will be able to find thousands of these and not just find new pulsars and study how they behave, but use them as tests of ripples in space-time. So a different way of probing the nature of space-time and how it's perturbed um, when, when it gets when it gets disturbed, for example, by supermassive black holes merging together. So it's that exciting um, interface I think, between really pushing forward our tests of the fundamental laws of physics. Sometimes we have these leaps of understanding every century or two, so we'll be at the forefront of that, right through to understanding some of the detailed physical processes that happen in all sorts of different places in the universe. It's really, really exciting. I mean, to, just to sort of go back to um, supermassive black holes, um, I think most people will remember, I think it was maybe about two years ago now, the um, the, the incredible photograph of the black hole at the centre of galaxy M87. Um, do you are are you thinking that that we could produce images like that of, of other black holes or even the black hole at the centre of our own galaxy? Yeah, I mean, that's that's again using the same kind of technique because the um, Event Horizon Telescope is exactly this idea of radio astronomy aperture synthesis, we call it. So connecting all of those millimetre wave radio telescopes around the world to make a telescope the size of Earth. So that was very, that was very exciting. It's quite different frequency um, to what the SKA will be able to do. Um, and really, I think, you know, with the SKA, what will be fantastic will be able to look at the gas close to black holes and see what might be feeding those black holes. Because we know there are, um, there's a family of galaxies, the called active galaxies, that actually spew energy and material out from the centres of their galaxies, um, so-called quasars, quasi-stellar objects that were discovered by radio astronomers. And we don't yet know what causes that kind of cosmic indigestion, how to remove the angular momentum from the material and get it to actually get moved closer to the black hole. So I think we'll get some really unique views of those. And the other exciting thing for me that the SKA will do, we'll be able to do a massive um, survey of these kinds of objects. So there's one way to study black holes, which is the Event Horizon Telescope. We can look in great detail the environment around one black hole and actually see the shadow of the black hole, which, as you say, was groundbreaking. Um, the other way, of course, is to do millions and billions of these kinds of sources. So do a statistical census and really understand the population of them. And that's the other revolution that the SK is going to provide for us, is that massive increase in survey speed, that we're no, we will no longer be doing bespoke observations of one object at a time. And all radio astronomers have their favourite galaxies and their favourite quasars. They can tell you them by name and by number. But, you know, the SK is going to take us into a very different ballpark where we'll have literally millions and billions of these things. Um, and we'll be using you know, advanced techniques of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence um, to power through the data because we'll, we'll sadly no longer be able to gaze at our, our own favourite galaxy and say, I wonder what, what, what this looks like, but actually we'll be able to put that in the wider population context. And, you know, and I should say, we, we will be able to do great detailed studies, um, as you say, at the centre of our own Milky Way, where there's all sorts of fireworks happening that you can see in the radio wavelengths. So we'll be able to connect those detailed forensic studies um, with the wider statistical surveys that we're able to do. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. With regard to the the telescope itself, if it's sort of in, in, in a fixed place on our planet, um, as a result of it combining um, fixed radio telescopes, do, do we then have to account for Earth's orbit and rotation? And does that does that sort of re- restrict what you can see, or you, you can only spend a certain amount of time looking at something because Earth will spin and you'll lose that your your perspective? Well, actually, the rotation of the Earth is one of the things that helps us to make the telescopes work. Um, so as the uh, as the Earth rotates, the view. If you imagine being out in space, so if you you imagine you are sitting in an external galaxy and you're looking back at the surface of the Earth, what you see on the Earth is this array of telescopes. And if you imagine each telescope is connected, so we call that the distance between telescopes as a baseline. So you have a whole bunch of pairs, literally thousands and thousands of pairs of telescopes on the Earth. And that really is a mesh, if you like, that takes a snapshot of the sky. And as the Earth rotates, um, we're effectively filling in all the gaps between those dishes. Um, so that Earth rotation is an important part of aperture synthesis. We combine all of those samples and signals in the computer, and that helps us to fill in even more of the gaps, because ultimately you can't put telescopes so close together. You separate those, you connect them by optical fibres. So Earth rotation is actually um, a feature that we use to do interferometry. Um, and then also the other thing that we were able to do because the Earth is rotating, um, as you say, we're able to piece those data together Um some of the sources will be visible all the time. Some of them will be will be visible at part of the day, but we'll, we'll be able to come back um, at the next part of the cycle and continue to observe those, those sources and stack them up. And then in terms of you know, the Earth's place in the solar system um, and the Milky Way, we actually do have to make corrections for the path of the Earth and its orbit. And so the, the signals will be so precise the way we're measuring them. We will actually put all of those orbital properties um, into our calculations to make sure that we correct for them. So it's really the Earth as a, as a giant spaceship in some ways will make those positional calculations. Very, very, very precise um, digital um, calculations that we make. That's so cool. I mean, given that, you know, the uh, telescope is defined by where the individual uh, telescopes are, could you say in future, rather than, you know, Australia and South Africa, could you have like one on Earth and then one on the moon and one on Mars and create an absolutely r- ridiculously massive <laughs> telescope? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are already plans to, to think about this. So uh, colleagues over in the United States are looking at one of the craters on the moon, on the far side of the moon, and thinking about how to make that into a giant telescope, sort of similar to the Arecibo dish um, that sadly collapsed in Puerto Rico earlier this year, and also similar to the new Chinese telescope, the FAST telescope, which is built in a natural giant hollow in the ground. And so the idea of actually sending robots to the moon to build this radio telescope is, is exciting. One of the real challenges, of course, we have um, is keeping the um, the environment pristine for radio astronomy. We are able to take out radio interference from our data using clever digital editing techniques. But of course, you know, planets like the moon will be used for other things. You know, there are already plans afoot to go and, you know, think about establishing um, a lunar base there. There might be interest in mining and other sorts of, you know, activities on the moon. And of course, when we do send humans to the moon, they will then want to communicate back with Earth. And so I think, you know, in terms of fundamental science and other uses that humans will want to 
make of these planets. I think now is a really good time to have that conversation about how we create sustainable, safe environments that are good for people and for science and that one doesn't then interfere with the other. Because, you know, the, the discoveries that we can make and the engineering um, challenges and triumphs that we, we we move through in order to do fundamental science then ultimately benefit benefit humanity. So we should be doing that in a, a clear-eyed way, I think, right from the start. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, one of, one of the, the other um, aspects of MSK that I was really interested in reading about was um, the uh, search for and, and study of um, exoplanets. Because whenever you sort of talk about the fact that SK is going to be able to Look at look at you know supermassive black holes and and sort of um, examine you know galaxy clusters and get dark matter and maps and things like that. It sort of seems like exoplanets surely are are far too small, you know, for something as as huge as as SKA to look at. Well, the, the beauty of the bigger you go, the smaller you can see. Um, so that's that's the way to think about it. So the larger your telescope, the finer the detail you can see, the more filled your aperture is, the more sensitive your array is. So the SK is really, you know, the combination of both of those. So very, very large in terms of the separation. So 3000 kilometer baselines, so we'll be able to see very small detail at, very, at great distance, um, but also filling in that aperture. So it's very sensitive. And I think going back to what you were saying about could we have interplanetary baselines? Yes, that would be very exciting. We could. And that would give us huge fidelity and ability to see uh, small things at great distance. But those things would have to be immensely bright because, of course, we wouldn't have a telescope or the, we wouldn't have the engineering to fill the spaces between the planets. Whereas what the SKA is doing, it will be able to see that detail and also have the sensitivity to really start to get weak signals. And so, you know, really what we're looking for is some of the... Um, if you like the cradle of life, so how do how do planets form? Um, what uh, what causes planets to form around stars? How do we look for the so-called habitable zone? So the Earth sits in a very nice, comfortable position, close enough to the sun, not too close, not too far away, and so we'll be able to probe those sorts of regions. And also, you know, ultimately, we may even be able to within the relatively local universe could imagine looking for extraterrestrial signals. So I've, I've heard the analogy and I, I'd have to do my own calculation to verify this, um, that an airport radar would be detectable um, within the first, you know, first few first few light years, uh, stars in the local neighbourhood, um, if they had planets on them um, that had airport radars on them. So that's quite a neat idea that we would have the sensitivity to be able to pick up those kinds of non-natural signals if they existed. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Imagine that. Imagine if you're actually able to to find some sort of artificial signal. <laughs> yeah, it would be. I mean, we, we have protocols for that, fortunately. <laughs> Scientists are very <laughs> really? open-minded. Yeah, I mean, we and they, they were laid down, I guess, in the 1960s. Um, so that, you know, because we do scan um, the, the radio frequencies, um, obviously there are natural frequencies like 21 centimetre for hydrogen, which is a universal signal um, that is, is everywhere in the universe. And so, uh, yeah, the, there, is a, there is a world protocol uh, on how to scan the frequencies and what to do if we find a signal that we think is artificial, how to check it, how to challenge our assumptions so exciting um highly unlikely but not impossible and therefore we keep an open mind and we continue to use the scientific method uh, to challenge assumptions yeah. and, and check our signals <laughs> and what about sort of um grand you know ev even bigger picture stuff like sort of going back to it it's that idea you know that light light is traveling towards us so the the deeper you look the further back in time you're looking like just, just how close could we get to the to the beginning of the universe and presumably we couldn't we couldn't ever actually witness the beginning of the universe, could we? We couldn't, um, I think, with the square kilometre array, but we're going to get very, very close. 
And that is one of the, the key science areas that the telescope has been designed to allow scientists to study, and um, the so-called um, epoch of reionization. So this is about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, so very early on in the age of the universe. And you're right that as we look further out in distance, we're looking back in time because of the length of time it takes for the light to reach us on Earth. And the, re- the epoch of reionization is really when a light started to come through the universe. So, you know, atoms started to, to recombine um, and we were able then to see a clear view. Before that, the universe is actually opaque to radiation. So it's, it's almost like a, a wall behind which we can't see. We've got the physics for that. We've got the theories. We've got some testable predictions and consequences um, of the Big Bang, uh, which, you know, something like the cosmic microwave background has already proven um, with Nobel Prize winning results um, that we can detect the dying embers um, of the of the Big Bang. But actually imaging that um, becomes very difficult because of that, that opacity in the early universe. But 300,000 years is incredibly early. And so that's really what the SKA is designed to be able to do to allow us to find those signals and possibly those ripples in the, the first hydrogen. Um, again, that might help us to understand, you know, dark energy and dark matter and some of these big open questions that we haven't yet got a, a grip on. Yeah, I mean, there you go. Like we, we, we haven't even touched on... Uh dark matter and dark energy i mean how is um how is uh, ska going to be um looking for answers to to those mysteries yeah so one of the things that we want to do i mean i mentioned to you the, the incredibly fast survey speed um because we'll be able to survey galaxies in hydrogen hydrogen has a very narrow um, region over the spectrum over which it emits. So this is called the spectral line. And so we can actually measure the distance to objects by looking to see how much the light has been shifted from its resting wavelength of 21 centimetres. And this is the Doppler effect. It's very similar um, to if you hear an ambulance go by and it's approaching you, the pitch is high, bee-bar, bee-bar, and then as it goes past you, bee-bar, bee-bar, and it drops. And so this is so-called redshift, and we actually can look at the 21 centimetre line, see how much it's shifted, measure the distance to the, the emitting object. And so the idea is actually to measure um, the distance to literally millions and billions of galaxies. The first thing we want to do is really to detect whether um, this so-called accelerated expansion of the universe um, changes as we look back in time. Has that evolved with time or is that a constant acceleration rate? It was a surprise. And so the question really is, do we have the laws of physics right? Um, Or is there something missing? Do we have to go beyond Einstein's general theory of relativity to really understand that acceleration of the universe? And also looking to see whether there are any imprints in those first ripples in the hydrogen to tell us whether there's some new physics that we need to explore. And, you know, the SK, of course, is beautifully designed to help us to do that. Yeah, it's really interesting you're saying about, you know, potential sort of flaws in our laws, because whenever you sort of think about um, dark matter and, and dark energy, they do sort of seem like ways of explaining missing maths or something like that, don't they? they that sort of seems to be, you know, it, it's it's a sort of a, a, a name we've given to a missing piece of the puzzle, would you say? Very much so. I mean, I think we understand about 4% of the universe. About 4% of the the universe is no matter. Um, We know that something produces gravitational attraction. So material um, is what produces, you know, the, the gravitational forces that we see the whole galaxies together, that holds the Earth in orbit around the around the sun. And we know that by looking at how, how quickly galaxies are rotating and then measuring the, the mass that we can detect um, with our telescopes, that there is some missing material. There's something that is causing those galaxies to rota- rotate faster than they should. And we're not finding all the, the missing matter. So we know there's something missing there. Um, we have to, you know, we've tried all sorts of different things. We've corrected for gas at different wavelengths. And I think we've got a really good, complete picture 
in some ways of the components in these galaxies, for example. Um, we also look at massive galaxy clusters and we've all got all sorts of observational traces that tell us there's something that we're missing. Um, the other side, of course, particle physicists are constantly searching for um, signatures of exotic particles that might explain dark matter. So dark matter is gravitating. Dark energy is something different. This, again, is an observational uh, result. Um, some supernova scientists had discovered that actually the universe appeared to be ex accelerating its expansion. So not only was it ex expanding, but actually it was expanding more quickly than we would expect from, from, from our equations of the Big Bang. And so the question really is, as I say, do we have a complete theory of general relativity um, or is there something that we have to you know, understand beyond that? So is there a larger all-encompassing theory of, of space-time um, that general relativity is a special case of in the same way that Newton's laws of gravitation are a special case of general relativity? And so it's, you know, there are many theorists who are working, I believe there's something like 20 or 30 different theories um, that combine, for example, the smallest scale physics where quantum mechanics governs um, up to the larger scales where gravity governs. And so bringing these scales together, again, is one of those big frontiers in physics that we haven't solved. <laughs> it, it is really cool. And it, it makes you think that um, if everything if everything did go to plan over the coming decades with, with SKA, you, you would actually get basically the entire story of the universe, wouldn't you? From, well, very close to the beginning up to the evolution of, of galaxies and galaxy clusters and then planets and, and everything. You like, do, are, are you sort of confident that that, that you know that it will be able to 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 deliver that that depth and range. Well, I'm certainly feeling the pressure now, Ian. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it's pretty mind boggling, as I said. You know, to go from you know the early '90s where we're thinking of this kind of nice cool hydrogen telescope, how would we do that with cheap off the component off the shelf components, through to this incredible facility that's going to open up all these new windows on the universe. It's daunting. It's exciting. I am confident we will do this um, because there is such a global desire to make this happen. It's inspired a whole new generation of scientists and engineers. We're working across the discipline. So it's no longer, you know, small groups of dedicated, clever radio astronomers, but we're actually working with computer scientists, mathematicians, civil electronic engineers, engineers, you know, and, and scientists across the spectrum um, and around the world. So for me, it's a huge global enterprise. It's very, very exciting to see the energy and mobilization that has taken us to this phase. And I think now there's renewed energy because we're thinking about actually building and putting it on the ground now. The hard work, you're right, does start because this will be the most complex facility in the world, I would say. And there's all sorts of interesting and exciting and unexpected things, even just in the design and the build of the facility that I'm sure we'll be learning about. And all sorts of new ways to process our, our data, our digital signals. You know, we take analog signals from the telescopes, we digitize them, we, they go into a correlator. The correlator itself is a feat of engineering in its own right. So I think there'll be huge amounts of you know, innovation and new things for engineers and scientists to discover before we turn our attention and say, are we answering the questions about the universe? But in some ways, this is how science, engineering, innovation, observation, experimentation and theory go hand in hand. And we take little steps. So sometimes the theorists will make a prediction. It has a, a test. We build and discover the engineering that has to be put in place in order to test that prediction. And then we verify or confirm the theory. Um, we may have to invent and discover new ways of doing that in terms of our engineering. Sometimes we bring innovations in engineering and innovation in and open up new windows on the universe. And so it's a, almost a dance that helps us to nudge forward the frontiers of knowledge. And for me, that is incredibly inspiring and exciting. There's a whole new generation of young people 
who are coming into this excited and thrilled by the big scientific questions that we want to answer about the universe, who then start to do very advanced computing, um, AI, machine learning, engineering, and all of those technical subjects that sometimes may seem quite dry when they're at school or they don't even know exist. But because we're opening up those big questions, say, come come, try and study the, the, the universe or understand black holes or discover whether gravity's you know, well constrained. And before you know it, they're doing sorts of all sorts of other really advanced um, systems engineering. So I think, you know, in terms of the impact for society, that's also vast as well when we take these big questions and then we pull through to delivering the answers through engineering innovation. Incredible. Imagine if you could um, travel back in time and, and go and visit Bernard Lovell in, in, in a muddy field in Cheshire and, and tell him about this. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so Bernard died in 2012. He was incredible and he died in his 90s. He came to the observatory every day long after he retired. And for me, he was a, he was a really inspiring character. He was also incredibly cultured. He had an arboretum. He had a real interest in nature and the environment, which I think, you know, is a real value piece there. Um, And he was also an incredible musician. So there was a grand piano in the planetarium in the Jodrell Bank Visitor Centre. And he used to encourage the students to go and use the piano so that it wouldn't go out of tune because it used to frustrate him um, that every time he he thought to use it for a concert and he he, he ran, he had some wonderful concerts in the past, world leading, you know, pianists who would come and play and do concerts there. It would frustrate him that the thing would be out of tune and he felt it should be be played. So I I was very fortunate. I did use that piano a few times. Very daunting. Beautiful Bechstein, you know, seven in the morning. I'd go in and sneak and lift the lid and play a few tunes and then go back and continue with my PhD studies. So it was a phenomenal environment. And it's wonderful to see the international governmental organisation having its headquarters there at Jodrell Bank. Brand new building, a real nexus, I think, for radio astronomy in the world. And a thrill just to see that legacy continue, you know, for the next 50 to 100 years, I hope. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, really looking forward to what comes ahead over the next, you know, years and decades. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for, for speaking to me, Carol. And, you know, good luck with all the SKA stuff in the future. I'm really looking forward to seeing the first science results and, and, and the big discoveries, hopefully. And thanks for the opportunity to speak to you, Ian. We'll go and get, get on with the work now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. <laughs>